What shall I say first? What shall I keep until the end? The gaunts have tried me in a thousand ways. But first, my name, let that be known to you. And if I pull away from pitiless death, friendship will bind us, though my land lies far away. I am Laertes' son, Odysseus. From Book Nine of the Odyssey, as translated by Robert Fitzgerald. Welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. This is the first episode of the second series of this podcast. The first series covered the history of the ancient world, from the beginning of the universe until the rise of the Persian Empire. The second series will delve into the history of the ancient Greeks. There will be a total of eight series produced over the next several years, each series covering a portion of Western history until we reach the eighth and final series about life in the 21st century. The first series was called The Ancient World. The name of the second series is The Greek Sun. I have decided to call it that because the Greeks really are the generative force when it comes to Western history. You might think that I am overstating the case for Greek primacy in this matter, but I hope once you listen to the coming episodes that I will change your mind and help you see how the Greek supernova of thought that began some 25 centuries ago still influences our thinking today, how the notes that they played in their song are still echoing in our ears today. Before I continue with the podcast, though, I wanted to direct my listeners to the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. I've hired a web designer to improve the website and begin offering books and other merchandise. The designer's name is Paul Valenzuela, and he helped me establish the website last year, and he's now working on it monthly to make it more accessible to the public and more user-friendly in general. While you're at the website, Please feel free to leave a comment, and if you can, support the podcast through PayPal or Patreon. Now, I am a former school teacher, and I have a tendency to formulate my ideas like I am preparing curriculum. Indeed, after the podcast really got rolling and I was producing episodes consistently, I noticed an unconscious tendency on my part to write episodes that lasted somewhere in between 40 and 60 minutes, just as if I was lesson planning for school kids. Indeed, this whole idea for a podcast probably has its genesis in a curriculum that I prepared for homeschooling my own children many years ago. I devised that curriculum to cover six different areas of study religion, philosophy, mathematics, literature, history, and science. The other appropriate subjects were attached to one of those six, such as studying art in the literature portion, mythology in the religion section, economics in the history section, and so on. As much as possible, I tried to make sure that all the content used for each class or subject of study that my children approached, that all the content was from the historical period we were studying, So, during the Roman portion, for example, we might read from Ovid's Metamorphoses, or read Roman philosophers only. And the religion would cover both Roman mythology and the new Christian religion that was rising among the Romans in the late empire. After laying out a rough idea of the direction of this podcast series, I realized, again, that I was sort of dividing things into subject areas, in addition to laying them out in historical order. And there really is no getting away from this, and there's a good reason for that. 
That reason has a lot to do with why I named this series The Greek Sun. With other portions of that homeschool curriculum that I prepared years ago for my children, the portions that were not about the Greeks, I often had to stretch things or supplement the curriculum with outside sources in order to make the curriculum work. For example, finding mathematical works from the Middle Ages to study during the medieval semester of the curriculum was challenging. and I typically just supplemented the course with standard textbook work. Just as finding literature was difficult for the portion of the curriculum devoted to the ancient world before writing existed, so I would supplement with more modern sources. There was never any need, however, to supplement the Greek portion of the curriculum with outside sources. The Greek contributions to learning and thought are found in every major subject area of academics, science, literature, math, you name it. The Greeks have supplied some sort of mental stimulus to Western society in every branch of knowledge. In that homeschool curriculum that I spoke of, I would also apportion about a semester to each of the other historical areas of the curriculum, which was designed along the same lines as the eight series of this podcast, starting with the ancient world and continuing through the Greeks and Romans and so on to contemporary times. For the Greek portion of the curriculum, however, I could have easily set aside two or even three semesters in order to tell their story and to reveal the depths of their learning. So, given the way that the ancient Greeks contributed so widely and for such a long period to human learning, the name Greek Sun came naturally to me because the Greeks are a burst of light coming out of the darkness of their own prehistory. And I should not let you think that I speak simply of their academic endeavors. The ancient Greeks were brilliant of mind and vigorous of body as well. Their exploits in every arena of life still astound me after all these years. Here was a tiny population, perhaps just several tens of thousands of able-bodied men, a total population in the hundreds of thousands, maybe, that withstood the Persian behemoth that came crashing into their peninsula. And meanwhile, in and around Athens and Sparta, amid a small city-sized collection of Greeks who still worked their own fields, dressed their own vines, and herded their own animals, in Athens and Thebes and Sparta and their environs, they produced minds like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in just a few generations. Can you think of a town near you, a small town that is thrusting such great minds out into the world at that rate, that in those same generations nurtured poets like Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Aristophanes, historians like Herodotus and Thucydides, mathematicians like Euclid, political and military greats such as Leonidas, Pericles, Miltiades, Xenophon, and Alexander. It boggles the mind to think of it. And all this from a backwoods of the world, not from the teeming metropolises of Mesopotamia or Egypt. We tend now to overestimate the contemporary greatness of ancient Greece when we think of those times, because we see the ruins of the Parthenon and attribute a splendor to ancient Greek life that simply wasn't there when compared to the Persian or the Egyptian world. In the times of which I speak right now, the numerous cities of Mesopotamia and Egypt were the centers of power, wealth, and civilization. There in those lands, people lived lives of sophistication with access to the greatest works of art and the greatest libraries of the world. Even the Greeks knew this and spoke admiringly of the Persian world. Even those not under his power still called the Persian ruler the king of kings because they knew that he ruled over a vast land, an immense populace, and a wealthy culture that challenged their imaginations to conceive. The Greek world was, by comparison, small, insular, and fragmented into squabbling factions. Yet from out of this shallow, murky pool emerged great figure after great figure, warriors and thinkers, and often the thinkers and the warriors were one, 
Socrates, for instance, the great philosopher, fought valiantly in the Peloponnesian War. It is something to remember when you read the Platonic Dialogues that you are not listening to the words of a gaggle of effete university professors, but rather these are men who have fought, who have drawn blood, who have conquered and been defeated and conquered again, but they are just as vigorous of mind as they are of body. Their wits are as sharp as their swords. And they were resilient. The Athenians abandoned their city rather than surrender to their enemy, watched the Persians burn their homes from a distance, and yet, in a few years, they were the ones on the march and throwing the Persians out of Greece. Okay, as you can see, I can get carried away talking about the Greeks. I hope that over the course of the next couple of years, perhaps, that I can make you as enthusiastic about Greek history as I am. They were a type of men and women, hardy and shrewd, wise and brave, a kind of people we do not meet anymore except in rare circumstances, and perhaps that is a good thing. I think that even just a handful of these people appearing today would have the energy and brilliance to take the world over without a fuss. They did not know how to rest. Both their minds and their bodies were ever on the move, ever inquiring and investigating and infiltrating. They could not be contained, and this ebullience would manifest itself completely and finally when Alexander the Great, in 334 BC, crossed over into Asia with a small army, quickly overthrew the Persian Empire, and unleashed an outpouring of Greek culture and blood into Asia and Africa. The purpose of this introductory episode is, of course, to introduce you to the historical timeline and to give an overview of what lies ahead. Let me do that now by explaining things in terms of curriculum, in terms of the six areas which I just mentioned. History is the backbone of this podcast, and most of the content is designed to hang from the skeletal frame of historical events. That history will begin with the demise of Minoan supremacy on the island of Crete in the second millennium BC and the transference of local hegemony to the Mycenaeans at that time. You may remember a brief introduction to this concept from the last series, from the episode on ancient Crete. From there, we will follow Greek history through the Bronze Age collapse, a time period that is also known as the Greek Dark Ages. From that period of decline emerges the society that we now call Classical Greece, with its origins sometime in the 7th century BC, when Athens and Sparta and Thebes and other cities begin to flourish, and men like Lycurgus and Solon move men and women to adapt their growing cultures to a changing world. We will see together how the Greeks endure the Persian tide and eventually turn it back, before losing decades of advances as their city-states descend into the civil strife of the Peloponnesian War. Then the Macedonians will take the lead and, led by Alexander, turn loose the suppressed vigor and brilliance of this great people upon the world. There follows a long period of Greek dominance over the ancient Near East that is only brought to an end when the Romans come and bring peace, with the sword, to the endless infighting of the Greeks. Our narrative will end there, but not before I relate how the Greek mind would continue to dominate Western culture, even though even through the Roman and medieval periods of our history, and how the Greek imprint continues even in our own day, here in the 21st century. Religion also plays a crucial role in our discussion of ancient Greek culture. Many of us remember an introduction, anyway, to Greek mythology when we were in school. You might remember some of the names of the pantheon of gods, that there were more or less 12 major gods that 
Zeus was the high god over them all. Perhaps you even remember other names of gods, and the domains over which they ruled, such as Poseidon being lord of the sea and Demeter, goddess of the harvest. Or you recall that Zeus had to kill his father Kronos to free his swallowed brothers and sisters and become king of the gods himself. The Greek mythology episodes will flesh out these memories for you and reveal even more details about not just what the Greeks may have believed about their gods, but what their beliefs looked like, how they practiced their religious beliefs. Understanding Greek spirituality will prepare us also for many future series in this podcast. Many, perhaps most, may be unaware of how Greek thought impacted and continued to impact Christian thought in the post-pagan era. The books of the New Testament are written in Greek, and the greatest minds of the early church were largely Greek. It was centuries before the Western church turned to Latin as its liturgical language, and Greek continues to be the language of the church in the Orthodox world. Throughout the Middle Ages, Christian thinkers would grapple with the Greek legacy, embracing some aspects of Greek thought and rejecting others. The Catholic Church would eventually even submit its theology to Aristotle in the Middle Ages, thanks to St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, the Greek contribution to literature is also fundamental. The works of Homer remain standard reading material for students in the West. Furthermore, prior to the discovery of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Iliad and the Odyssey stood undisputed as the first examples of epic literature and still remain as the most powerful and lasting examples of such lofty works. The Odyssey, in particular, remains a template for heroic stories even today. Classical Greece would also make numerous contributions to literature in the form of the many play scripts that survive extant to this day and in a vast array of other poetic works. And with regard to the subject of philosophy, I, I will hardly know where to begin when introducing the ancient Greek contributions. Truly, in the West, all philosophy begins with Plato. There were philosophers before Plato and Socrates, but it is the words of Socrates, as contained in the works of Plato, that have survived the ages. And it is the moral, philosophical, and political questions posed by Socrates that continue to perplex us even today. Indeed, more than one philosopher would agree that everything begins with Plato when it comes to philosophy, and even today, new philosophers are still responding to him. Aristotle would develop his own approach to philosophical matters, particularly with regard to logic, and his ideas would form the underpinnings of much Christian philosophy for centuries. Aristotle, furthermore, provides a bridge to science for us. In fact, Aristotle himself contributes significantly to learning in at least five of the six areas of which I have spoken. His work in logic and ethics are fundamental in philosophy. He wrote on the soul and metaphysics, and his thought became an integral part of the Catholic approach to religion in the Middle Ages. He also wrote on the history of political matters in two works, one named Politics and the other about the Athenian Constitution. And college students today are still often required to read his book on rhetoric, and he also wrote on poetics as well. Probably Aristotle, or whoever wrote down his lectures anyway, wrote many other works, but much has not survived the ages. He also made a great contribution to science, especially in biological science, in his writings. Now, today, many people will look back on the work of Aristotle and see the errors, which I will get into several episodes from now, but that is, it is that erroneous framework of his on which others would build to create the modern basis for biology today. Aristotle's works are remembered in biology along with those of Hippocrates, another Greek, an ancient physician who described methods for healing wounds, setting fractures, and even described diseases such as epilepsy. Now, Ptolemy was also a Greek uh, who lived during the Roman era. 
He composed the famous Almagest, which was the handbook for astronomical science throughout the Middle Ages. Again, later scientists such as Copernicus and Kepler would realize that the geocentrism of this work, the belief that the Earth was at the center of the universe, was an error and that the heliocentric model was the correct one. Nevertheless, the mathematics used in the geocentric model and the reasoning involved are probably beyond the average high school graduate of our so-called educated and advanced society. And speaking of mathematics, we come to our final subject, to which the Greeks contributed an unrepayable amount. Sometime around the 4th or 5th century BC, Euclid compiled his mathematical theorems and postulates into a book now famous for being the oldest example of a math text. It was called The Elements, or The Elements of Euclid. Truly, Euclid did not conceive all of these proofs himself. He was more a compiler of ideas which had been worked out centuries and possibly millennia before. And amazingly, all the mathematics in Euclid are worked out geometrically, using only lines and two-dimensional shapes, and no numbers. Yes, that's right, there are no numbers involved in Euclid's math. Everything is proved using lines of different lengths. His book is an amazing, if dry, read. In this text, some 2,500 years old, you will find proofs for many of the math concepts that you may not have learned until you reached algebra in high school. Many later Greeks would continue to sustain their contemporary world, the world of the Roman Empire, with their knowledge and learning. Archimedes, for example, would astound the world with his profound understanding not only of math, but of physics as well, and his ingenious inventions famously defended the city of Syracuse from foreign occupation until the Romans finally breached the walls. So well regarded was he that the soldiers were under orders not to kill Archimedes when they found him. However, Archimedes enraged his captors when he refused to pay any attention to their demands until he solved a particular math problem which he was working on during the siege. Enraged, the soldiers who had intended to escort him to their general killed him and suffered the wrath of the Roman general in the aftermath. Now, in adhering to my habits as a school teacher, besides approaching much of the Greek series in terms of academic subject areas, I have also divided the episodes into three units. The first will be called Ancient Greece, and it will cover the time period from Mycenae through the Greek Dark Ages. The second unit will be called Classical Greece, and this will explore the development of Greek society after about the 7th century BC until the 4th century BC. Finally, the third unit will be called the Hellenistic Period, and it will deal with the advent of Alexander the Great and the legacy of his generals and their successors through the 1st century BC. Each of these three units will be more fully described in upcoming introductory episodes. It would be a mistake to think that the Greek influence was wrapped up when the Romans took over the eastern Mediterranean, conquered the lands once ruled by the Greek monarchs in the last centuries before the birth of Christ. No, Greek culture, language, and learning would continue to maintain the framework of society in these lands and would greatly influence cultural matters in Rome and locations farther west. Greek would remain as the common language in the eastern Roman lands for the duration of the Roman Empire, After the fall of Rome in the west, the empire would survive and thrive in the east, with the capital in Constantinople for another thousand years, until 1453 AD. Latin would remain the court language of that eastern empire until about the 7th century AD, 
But after that, Greek became used in official matters so that, once again, centuries after apparent subjugation to Roman dominance, Greek culture had once more risen to the top. In the East and in many places in the West, such as Sicily and southern Italy, Greek had been the liturgical or church language since the very beginning of Christianity, and Greek had remained the common language in those areas because they were actually settled by Greeks during the classical era. That is a surprise to many people who have not deepened their understanding of Western history yet, that prior to the Middle Ages, it was Greek and not Latin or Italian that was spoken in these places that we now think of as parts of Italy. But all of that is centuries down the road, and some of it is even beyond the scope of this series, which will focus only on the time period from Mycenae until about the first century BC. Still, I hope this shows how influential Greek culture is, even still in our day. We have a long and fantastic journey ahead of us. I am not sure at this point how long it will take to get through the Greek series, even working at an increased pace. I started this journey in early 2021 on the series that I thought would require the least amount of time, and I only just finished it in June of 2022. I suspect that the Greek series will take more than two years. During that time, though, we will get to meet some of the greatest men and women who have ever lived, and the marvelous deeds that they wrought, and the incredible ideas that they brought into the world. The next episode in this series will introduce the first unit of episodes about ancient Greece. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.